Well, good day, everyone. I'm Sam. And I'm Jack. And welcome to The Extras. Good to be back for another week with you, Jack. Hello, yeah. Good to be here. Thanks for Sunday, mate. Fantastic uh, week. I mean, we had, a, we had a huge Sunday in the morning in particular. We had a big combined service, everyone all in together. Yeah, fantastic to see Morning Church and North Rocks and Early Morning Church all together. I really enjoyed it. It was great. Yeah, I did too. It was fantastic. And then, uh, yep, a bit, bit more business as usual in the afternoon. And uh, we were in Genesis 13, 14 on, yeah, that's right. on Sunday. Just if, if you're catching up um, with us, perhaps you, you weren't there on Sunday, uh, Jack, can you remind us where we, where we were, what we were thinking about in that part of God's Word? Sure thing. So Genesis chapter 14, the big idea, big idea there, it's all about greatness. So we saw this big battle between these four kings from the far east and these five kings from Sodom and the cities around there, and the... The five kings get crushed, their bid for greatness is squashed, and that reminded us that human attempts at greatness are never going to last. But on the other hand, Abram comes along, and uh, Lot, who got carried off in that, that battle, Abram rescues him, and we find out actually that was all God as well. God's the one who brings about this great rescue. And then at the end, there's this pointer to someone even greater, this strange priest, king, mysterious guy named Melchizedek comes out, and we find out that he's the one who points us to the ultimate and greatest king of all, the Lord Jesus, who would come 2,000 years later. Okay, so all about greatness. Um, we've got some questions that have come in uh, in light of uh, Sunday. We'll, we'll just dive in and try and get our head around some of them. Yeah, great. Um, we've got a question here about just trying to nut out some of the details around the the sort of action in the narrative. Yeah. Um, Abraham goes out with his 318 trained men in, in verse 14. Mm. There's these other names that get mentioned, Anna, Ashkol, Eshkol, and Mamre, um, who Abraham seems to be in amongst. Um, and the question is, do they go along with him too as he goes out to fight? Because um, they get a mention in verse 24 again. So how, how do they fit in with the, with what's the action of this story? Yeah, so I take it they do come along for the ride as well. Uh, he's, yeah, Abram's mentioned along with them in verse 13 there. He's living with these guys, it seems. Since chapter 13, verse 18, he's pitched his tents at Hebron along with this guy named Mamre and his two brothers there. We find out that they, they're in some sort of league or alliance with Abram. Uh, the NIV says they were allied with Abram. And mm. quite like a more kind of wooden, literal translation of that phrase, they're, they're masters of a covenant oh, with that Abram. Sounds cool. Yeah, it sounds like a good place to be. They're in this kind of coalition, I guess. Mm, okay. And then, yeah, verse 24, we find out that they went along. So Abram's talking to the king of Sodom and says, you know, I don't want any of the stuff except, you know, give the share to the men who went with me, to Anna and Eshkol and Mamre. So it does seem that when Abram gets swept up in this, this conflict, his mates, the three Amorite brothers, they're like, yeah, we're with you. We're part of this coalition. We're going to come along for the ride as well. Yeah, okay. They all get up on the ute and head up to <laughs> take part in the battle. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um that's really helpful. Um, okay, so now following on from that, Abraham wins the battle, um, mm. and you made the point on on Sunday really helpfully that um, the victory ultimately belonged to God. Yeah. Um, in fact, Genesis makes that point as well. Um, but the questions then come in about, well, does that mean that no matter how hard I work for something, if, if I succeed or have a victory in some sense, does that mean that it's, it's really got nothing to do with me and can I be happy about that? Do I, what was my hand in that success that I might have had? 
Yeah, I get the question. You you know, maybe feel a bit sorry for Abram. He's just won this great battle, and then he <laughs> finds out, oh, actually, it was God who delivered you. No, no like, credit for Abram. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't think that's quite how this passage in particular, but the Bible more generally puts it. Like, I think both Abram and God are involved in this victory. Because the first thing the passage says is that Abram did it. So verse 15 of the chapter, during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them. So it emphasizes Abram's the one who wins the battle and he makes the tactical decision and he leads his 318 troops to victory. Mm. And then later on, we find out that it was God who delivered your enemies into your hand. So both of them are there. Mm. I think it's probably right to say that God is the ultimate and the final cause of, well, everything that happens, but particularly in this passage. And in this passage, it's, it's probably underscored because it's a really unlikely victory that Abram wins. He's really yeah. outnumbered by these yeah. four big armies. You kind of look at that and think, well, how would he have possibly have done that just mm. on his own? Well, God was there bringing it all about. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So there's a, uh, God is, is the ultimate cause of this. And I guess that's a bit of a Bible type scene really, isn't it? Mm. We see that uh, over and over again. I'm just thinking of, of Gideon, you know, God keeps saying to him, mate, you've taken too many troops. And if you take more troops, it'll show that you won the battle. And I want to be clear that I won the battle. There's something kind of going on there, isn't it? With an unlikely force, there's no doubt that, that God is the one who brings it about. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that makes it clear to us that in all of life, God's the one who's ultimately in control, bringing these things about. As for the, yeah, the other part of the question, you know, for us as we do things today, you know, can mm. we have any happiness when things go well and we, we do good things that are good? Yeah. I think that's a good question as well. I mean, you might think maybe you're trying to, you know, work really hard to, to love, you know, someone else, one of your friends at church, you're trying to find ways to encourage them, that kind of thing. And if you do that, is that something that you can't, really be happy about because ultimately god did it i don't think so i think that god tells us to to love and to encourage others and then we do it and he works that in us but also we do it so when you do something good yeah god is pleased with that god is pleased with you and you can have joy in that as well even though ultimately that's something that only comes from god so god's doing it but god is using means in terms of working through us Mm. so so we still got to we still got to do it we still got to love that person encourage that thing fight that battle, whatever, whatever that might be. Yeah. Um, but God is doing it through a means. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that explains the pattern you see in the New Testament where Paul will often start his letters, you know, I thank God for you and for your love and your labors of love and all these encouraging things you're doing. He doesn't thank them directly for it. He thanks mm. God. Yeah. If someone, you know, if your friend at church does something good for you, yeah, you can thank them and you can thank God for them. Both are true. God works and he works through means, like you said. So I guess the point there then might be practically um, we can take heart when someone when something happens because of something that we've done, but we want to acknowledge God rightly like the, like the pattern of the Bible seems to be and Abraham is doing here, um, acknowledging ultimately that, that God is the one who, who's at work. I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay, that's really helpful. Okay, um, so now, now we move, move on towards the latter bit of the passage after the battle has come and, and Abram's sort of dividing the spoils of war mm. and this character Melchizedek um, arrives who's just, just an intriguing um, player in, in, in this story and you helpfully took us, took us through him on, on Sunday but there are a few questions and, and fair enough um, about who he is so let me see if I can pull some of these together. Sure. Um, the first one is, uh, if there's no record of Melchizedek again in Genesis, look, could he be a made-up character just to make a point here in the narrative? 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he is mentioned just once, but I don't think that should necessarily be the thing that makes us doubt that he was real. For starters, there's lots of other people in the book of Genesis who only rock up for a few verses for one scene. You know, Abram, he's the main character here and his family, we followed him through, but he talks to all sorts of other people who just show up for one episode. Like the King of Sodom, I don't think he appears again. Mm. And he's presented to us, you know, in the same kind of way Melchizedek is. I mean, the bigger point may be, yeah, can you have a, a made-up character who, you know, who isn't really real, who's not mis- historical? Maybe the, the narrator's just kind of fabricated this person to make a point. Yeah. I think that comes down to a question of genre because there are times in the Bible where something more like that happens. So you might look at something like the book of Proverbs, which is a very poetic book. It's not presenting this historical narrative. It's presenting mm. these, these poems that teach us something. Yep. And there you see figures like like Lady Wisdom and her counterpart, Lady Folly. And they're Mm. presented as these people, you know, Lady Wisdom's this woman who's out there in the marketplace, out there in the town, Mm. saying things, doing things. But it's pretty clear that she's not, you know, actually a physical, historical person. You're not going to look her up in the phone book, you know, Lady Wisdom, here she is, real person. Yeah, Yeah. she's she's this metaphor. She's this kind of poetic creation that's that's not historical, but it's still true and important because it's teaching us something. Mm. It's a bit different to Genesis, though, because Genesis comes to us as this historical narrative. Mm. And maybe this is a chapter that really makes that point. You know, we're tied into the geopolitical history of the time with all these different kings and these different nations. Like, it's pretty clearly not trying to dream up this poetic metaphor. It's saying, no, like, you know, when all these people were around, when these battles were happening, that's when we're talking about. Okay. So there's no reason in the text to suppose Mm. that Melchizedek is presented as a... Yep. A metaphor like that. Yeah, okay. So, so a real character hooked into these other real times and places and events that happened in, in history just a long time ago. Um, sort of carrying on from that then, because he, he just gets mentioned here the once in the narrative, um, we made a bit of a, you made a bit of a deal of him on Sunday. How are we meant to know that he's so important given that he just gets mentioned the once? I think it's it's partly because of what happens in that one meeting like it is very brief and maybe you'd think that if someone's important you'd kind of have you know repetition repetition is one way that the bible writers tell you someone is important it's not the only way though Mm. and look at what Melchizedek does he he comes along and he blesses Abram Mm. he and Abram kind of honors him as the greater one by giving him a tenth of the the plunder and that seems to be the point that the writer to the Hebrews makes so in Hebrews chapter 7 it makes the point that one of the well, the big reason that we see Melchizedek is so great is because of the way they treat each other in his interaction. So mm. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4, just think how great he was, talking about Melchizedek. Mm. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. And the point there seems to be, like, Abraham, he's the, the grandfather of the nation of Israel. If anyone in the Bible in the Old Testament is great, it's going to be him. Mm. But even he honors Melchizedek as even greater by giving him the tenth. Yeah. And it's there the other way around as well. So in, in verse 7, you know, without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So the mm. fact that Melchizedek does the blessing means he is the greater one here. Yeah, okay. So we see that just as by looking at the interactions between the characters. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and I guess perhaps the second way we see it is, is the fact that Hebrews talks about him. And, and we, we, as the Bible unfolds, it, it speaks about itself and about characters in it. Yeah, that's right. And there may be some progression going on there. Like, if, if all you had was Genesis, 
and you read this little episode of Melchizedek, maybe you'd think, oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting that someone as great as Abraham would pay this money to him, but maybe you wouldn't come to that same conclusion, oh, this guy's really so great. Mm. But if you're living a little bit later on, uh, Melchizedek's mentioned in Psalm 110 as well, which David wrote. So if you're living after David's time, maybe you think, oh, even King David kind of Mm. saw how great this Melchizedek guy is. That's starting to become a bigger deal. And then for us, after Jesus and in the age of the Holy Spirit and reading what the writer to the Hebrews write, we're like, oh, wow, like all Mm. along, way back then, God had set up this great figure. And maybe people didn't quite see it all clearly back then. But now that we have seen Jesus come, we've seen the great king and priest appear. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, oh, look, like way back then we could have known, like we had some inklings what he was going to be like. But now that we've seen Jesus come, it's, it's crystal clear. It's clear as day. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the point that, that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? Um, about how back in, in the past, they, the people who, who some of these events in the Old Testament took place in and amongst they actually weren't given access to the meaning of those events until us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come um, arrives and so we actually live in a very privileged position in salvation history that that we're able to look back on these things and see um, the fullness of their meaning and significance perhaps even in ways that maybe Abraham didn't even grasp because he didn't have the the full access to the full revelation of God as we do. Isn't that, that's quite a remarkable thought. Yeah, it's profound. Like God was engineering these situations way back then mm. for us, like for us who, who read it now. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's pretty profound. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's incredible. So yeah. that's a helpful question, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. Um, okay, let's keep going on Melchizedek here. Mm. Um, he's described as a priest of God in, in Genesis 14, um, yep. God most high. Um, how was he possibly a priest when all the laws and the traditions surrounding the priesthood had, hadn't been made yet? I mean, it's not really till sort of after the Exodus and the, the, the tribe of Aaron and, and Levi and, and all that kind of stuff where the Levitical priesthood comes into its being. How can Melchizedek be a priest now or then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. So laws and traditions, yeah, we typically are going to think of the, the tribe of Levi and everything the law says about, you know, how they're meant to be consecrated as priests and all the mm. different rules for how they're meant to offer sacrifices. Yeah, obviously Melchizedek had none of that mm. because it hadn't happened yet. And that seems to be part of the point of the whole story. Like when, when Psalm 110 talks about the, Mel- the Messiah being a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, mm. I think the point there is that that order of priests, the order of Melchizedek, is a different order to yeah. the order of Aaron and the order of Levi. Yeah. And that's certainly the way that the writer to the Hebrews seems to draw it out. Yeah. He says, yeah, the, the old order, the well, sorry, the new order, I guess, the, the Levi order, wasn't actually the, the kind of final perfect order of priests because the Old Testament Levitical priests, you know, they died, they couldn't mm. keep being priests forever. They sinned themselves, so they couldn't offer sins for. Sorry, they couldn't offer sacrifices to fully and, and perfectly deal with sin. Yeah. So the old order of Levi was good for a while, but the writer to the Hebrews is saying, well, Melchizedek's order is even greater because mm. he's this eternal priest. You know, without father and mother, he can actually save people completely yeah. because he lives forever. That's that's who Jesus is. So yeah, okay. So Melchizedek, he's he's a priest, not in the order of. Levi. That's kind of why he can be a priest, even though that order hasn't come about yet. Yeah. Okay. So that that's really helpful. Um, we're, we're not looking. The, the whole point is that he's not part of the Levitical order, but he's of a totally separate order, which Jesus comes in fulfillment of. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really really helpful. 
Okay, so last one then around um, uh, that this whole uh, thing with Melchizedek. Um, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, gives him 10% of mm. um, all the takings as that sort of sign of, of homage and uh, kind of acknowledging the greater one, if you like. Yep. Um, but then it, it sort of feels like um, in, in the interaction with the king of Sodom, which we didn't get into too much on Sunday, yeah. um, but it seems that then he gives Sodom, the king of Sodom the rest of the plunder because Abram then goes on to say, look, I'm not taking any of this because I don't want anyone to be able to say that you made me rich. But then it kind of feels like Melchizedek gets 10%. Yeah, that's nice. But then king of Sodom, 90%. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How great must he be? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Why, yeah. why the difference? It doesn't quite seem like... Uh, like, it just seems out of balance if Melchizedek is so great and we're not, we don't have anything in the New Testament saying and the greater king of Sodom, you know. How does this work? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's one that I've wrestled a bit with myself. I think it's quite hard to give a definitive answer. The, the text just doesn't say everything. And that's one of the things that often happens with the Old Testament narrative. We just get told what we get told, and we don't get all the answers to all the little questions we might like to know. The, the writer just kind of rolls on. He, he wants to make one point and doesn't give us all the answers. Mm. But I think, my, as I've reflected a bit about it, I think the idea is when Abram wins the battle against the four kings and brings the plunder back, that was the stuff that belonged to Sodom originally, but they got defeated got taken away and now mm. abram has defeated the ones who defeated them so now the plunder is abram's like he's mm. he's earned he's it. got all of sodom stuff now exactly yeah yeah god yep. has given it to him he's yep. given him the victory but now it's abram's yep and then he comes along to melchizedek and and honors melchizedek by giving him the tithe of all this plunder to recognize his greatness yep and he comes back to the king of sodom and it's i think it's almost like this ancient Near Eastern power play that the king of Sodom's trying to pull. It's like the king of Sodom saying, oh, yeah, like, you've brought all my stuff back. Like, that's great. You know, thanks for bringing me my things back. But <laughs> oh, I'm going to be so good to you because we're buddies. You know, I'm going to let you keep the goods for yourself. Even though they, you know, they belong to Abram. It seems like Sodom's kind of, I don't know, trying to bring about some sort of alliance or, you know, make himself seem like he's attached to Abram in some way. Yeah, okay. And it's at that point Abram says, with raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord, I'll accept nothing belonging to you. You know, not Mm. even the strap of a sandal. He doesn't want a cent from the king of Sodom so that no one will ever be able to look and and say, oh, the king of Sodom made Abram rich. It seems like the point is Abram's saying, "I I don't want anyone to be able to think that me and the king of Sodom are somehow in cahoots. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, and, and and I guess that's kind of significant given the the, the negative. Um, we've already had these hints of the negativity around Sodom that mm. you know we already know God's going to destroy it. We learned that back in chapter thirteen. Uh, we're going to get there in a few weeks' time. Um, so is, this is Abraham. Is he sort of saying I got nothing to do with the city of sin as well? Is that yeah? Kind I of... think that's right. Yeah, it's not like oh I'm going to give them ninety percent to honor them. No, he's giving them ninety percent to completely distance himself. Gotcha. From the city of sin. You know, you don't want to have anything to do with Sodom. That seems mm. to be Abram's point here. Because it's interesting, a couple of chapters ago, Abram was very happy to take the plunder from Pharaoh, from the king of Egypt. Yes. He didn't have any objection there. Yeah. And maybe that's because he's grown a bit and he's changed since then. Yeah. But I think probably more likely it's because Sodom is just the symbol of evil. This is the wicked mm. city. And Abram, it's like he's trying to be above reproach here. He doesn't want anyone to have the slightest hint that yeah. somehow... He has benefited from like the dirty money of Sodom. Doesn't want to be perceived in any way as connected to to this evil city. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, great. Okay, I mean, again, sort of that that's your best kind of read on it because the the text doesn't say that explicitly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
yeah. couple of you know we're speculating a little bit here because it doesn't say everything but that that's my that's my yeah, best, best go at it best go at it yeah that's helpful mate so yeah it's good good to kind of you know and if you've got a better thought um, and you want to keep the conversation alive they're happy to i imagine jack would be happy oh, to keep keep chatting and, i'd love yeah. to hear your thoughts yeah um, that'd be great you, yeah so yeah mate that's that's really helpful that's it for our questions for this week um but before we kind of wrap up um this coming sunday we're moving into genesis 15 pretty well-known chapter yeah, this is a big one. I'm really excited about this. We're looking at chapters 15 and 16 together. And maybe to give a little sneak preview of that, one of the verses from chapter 15 is a really famous one for people who know the New Testament well. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So this is a chapter really that's all about faith, about believing in God, trusting God. We're going to see why God is a God worthy of our faith, we're going to see why Abram responds with that kind of faith. What does that faith look like? And what does God do with our faith? How does God see people who have faith in him like that? Yeah, okay. Oh, so don't miss that. That's this, this coming Sunday. And uh, yeah, look, looking forward to it, mate. It's going to be good. Thanks for your work, Jack. Really good to dig into these questions with you. Remember, if you've got questions um, that you want answered on the podcast, you can put them on a card on Sunday. You can jump on our website onto the resources page and submit a question there. We can text one in during uh, one of the services that, that where they have uh, text lines open. Um, yeah, they're just really helpful. So please keep them coming because they, they help us to think well about the text. I, I, and I appreciate this, just getting pushed hard into the, into the, into the Bible myself. And I, yeah. yeah, I love your questions. They make me think harder. Yeah, it's really great to yeah. see that you're all engaging and, and thinking about what the Bible's saying too. Love it's, it. Yeah, it's just a good way then for us to keep serving each other as we push each other into the Word and try and get to the, the heart of, of what God has to say to us here. So please keep asking them. We, we, we love your questions and we'll keep doing our best to uh, tackle them each week. But until next time, um, thanks for listening and we'll, uh, we'll see you at church on Sunday. See you then.